In this episode, I talk a little about Psalm 23, but I also lift up some resources that can help us use the Psalms as tools for prayer. Hello friends, it's good to be with you as always. Thank you for taking a little time to be with me today. Uh, This is being aired on the Saturday before the fourth Sunday of Easter. So again, we are still squarely in the Easter season. And one of the readings for tomorrow, for Sunday, is the beloved and famous Psalm 23. So I'm actually gonna conclude uh, today's episode simply by reading that Psalm, which seems appropriate um, at this moment. But I wanna begin by lifting up uh, a couple of resources related to praying the Psalms and then read a little bit from a different, a third resource. Um, So the two I wanna start with are, these are actually two of the smallest books in my library, physically speaking, I mean. Um, One is by a gentleman you may likely have heard of, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, It's called Psalms, the Prayer Book of the Bible. And again, it's how many pages is it? 80 some, 85 or 86 pages. It's a tiny little thin volume. The other one is sort of similar in size, and this is also by a gentleman I've mentioned before, Thomas Merton. Um, This is called, again, simply Praying the Psalms. And this one is 40 some pages. So again, both small books, I would commend them to your reading. Um, They're both good introductions to thinking about what the Psalms are and how we can use them as tools for prayer as Christians. The third book, is a, a little more of a standard size book, 150 pages or so. This is by a gentleman, I may have mentioned him before, called Eugene Peterson. Um, he is the person who, he's a pastor, now no longer with us, he died a few years ago. Uh, he's a pastor, he's an author. He also wrote um, the translation of the Bible or the paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, which you may have heard of, uh, which is still a wonderful sort of different way to enter into the text of the, the the Bible in a way that's a little more contemporary, a little more common language. So he, um, I'm going to lift up a couple of short uh, readings about the Psalms. Again, this is, uh, if I didn't mention it, the book is called Answering God, the Psalms as Tools for Prayer. So again, each of these three books, um, similar ideas, sort of helping us use the, the Psalms in our own prayer life. And I'm going to start um, with a passage from the start of a chapter called Way. This is chapter 2. And his point here is that uh, the Psalms are, in fact, a a text that teaches us to pray. Um, And he says this, the text that teaches us to pray doesn't begin with prayer. And then he says this surprising thing, we are not ready. We are wrapped up in ourselves. We are knocked around by the world. The ways in which we are used to going about our business, our business or using our language of dealing with our neighbors and thinking about God don't exactly disqualify us from prayer, but neither, he says, do they help us much. And then he has two uh, short paragraphs about what the non-praying world, namely the world we all live in, do to us or, or how it exists, how it impacts us. First, he says, the non-praying world is a pushing, shoving, demanding world. Voices within and without harass, insisting that we look at this picture, read this headline, listen to this appeal, feel this guilt, touch this charm. It is asking too much that we move from this high stimulus world into the quiet concentrations of prayer without an adequate transition. 
uh, move from this high stimulus world. And by the way, this was published in 1991. That was a long time before, let's say, social media, for example. Uh, so if, if he was talking about a high stimulus world then, it's only gotten worse since then. So that's one thing. And then he says this about the non-praying world. Again, the world we all live in. And the non-praying world is also an intimidating world. We wake each day to a world noisy with braggadocio, violent with guns, arrogant with money. What use is prayer in the face of governments, armies, and millionaires? What motivation can we muster to pray when all the obvious power is already allocated to heads of state and barons of industry? Again, suggesting that in our workaday world, in the world we live and breathe in, we probably unconsciously diminish the power of prayer because we think, well, what good could a few words do, right? And then he concludes with this in this first passage. In prayer, we intend to leave the world of anxieties. Does anyone have anxieties today? We intend to leave the world of anxieties and enter a world of wonder. We decide to leave an ego-centered world and enter a God-centered world. We will or we want to leave a world of problems and enter a world of mystery. But it is not easy, he says. And can I get an amen to that? It's not easy. We are used to anxieties, egos, and problems. We are not used to wonder, God, and mystery. So he's just naming that as a reality. You know, it is difficult for us. It was difficult back in 91 or whenever it was, and it's difficult for us in 2021 to enter this other world centered around God. And then I want to read one other passage before I get to Psalm 23, in which he's talking about how we are prompted to pray uh, primarily, and he doesn't feel the need to apologize this, uh, because we have problems and issues and challenges in this world, right? <clears throat> and that's never going to change. And he says this, uh, the language of prayer occurs primarily at one level, the personal, and for one purpose, salvation. The human condition teeters on the edge of disaster. Human beings are in trouble most of the time. And again, can we get an amen to that? Those who don't know they are in trouble are in the worst trouble, he says. And prayer is the language of the people who are in trouble and know it and who believe or hope that God can get them out. As prayer is practiced, it moved, as prayer is practiced, it moves into other levels and develops other forms, so it expands beyond this, he's saying. But trouble, being in the wrong, being in danger, realizing that the foes are too many for us to handle is the basic provocation for prayer. And he quotes, and this is what I'll end with, uh, a well-known Jewish author, Isaac Beshevis Singer. He says, Isaac Beshevis Singer once said, I only pray when I'm in trouble. But I'm in trouble all the time. And so I pray all the time. And again, can we get an amen to that? So again, uh, uh, this sort of an introduction, a very brief way of, of positioning us as we prepare to enter this world of wonder, this world in which God is at the center, uh, moving away from the world we know all too well with troubles and difficulties and pain. So let me conclude, as I mentioned, uh, this is one of the readings for tomorrow, uh, uh, for the fourth Sunday of Easter. It's the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. And I want to make just one interpretive comment about this. Verse 6, which says, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word, follow me, in Hebrew is really better read as pursue, right? So, it's better to read it, I think. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me, shall chase me down, shall, shall seek me out in every moment of my life. And I pray as Christians that we can trust that God is seeking us, chasing us, pursuing us at every moment. Happy Easter again. Be well, stay in touch, and God bless. Mm-hmm.